In these uncertain times, it can be hard to make sense of everything that is happening across the world today. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at theregistrysf.com in San Francisco and theregistryps.com in Seattle. Today, we sit down with Kim Snyder, president of the U.S. West Region for Prologis. Kim is responsible for all activities for Prologis' West Region, including development, acquisitions, and operations. Key markets include San Francisco, Seattle, the Central Valley, Southern California, the Inland Empire, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. He joined AMB Property Corporation in 2005, bringing extensive experience in real estate development and construction, acquisitions, and industrial leadership. As managing director and senior vice president during his tenure at AMB, Kim managed AMB's airport group, as well as Mexico and Brazil operations. Prior to AMB, he was president and CEO of Paragon Capital Corporation and served as managing director for Insignia ESG's Western Region Development Operation before working at Paragon. And prior to Insignia, Kim was a partner with the investment building group based in Los Angeles. Welcome, Kim. Kim, how's it going? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Vlad. It's great to be here with you. Yeah. Where does this podcast find you today? Well, I'm in a, a small room in the back of the house uh, that has a window. That uh, So my home office is uh, still uh, on lockdown here in Southern California. Great. Well, you are, you're one step ahead of me, Kim, because my little space where I am doesn't have a doesn't have a window so you can at least see the the sunshine outside or or you know whatever weather you have so well thank you for taking the time to chat with us I I really appreciate it um, as kind of a introduction to to you know you and also Prologis what we typically do is I you know ask our speakers to give a couple of introductory points you know give us a sense of you know how long you've been with the company how where where is your sphere of influence in the company and what you do there, essentially. I have been in the business since uh, 1984. So uh, I've been an industrial guy for quite a while. The industrial real estate business has always been intriguing to me. Uh, and uh, I, I started in Los Angeles in 1984 for a small boutique developer with a kind of a, you know, learn by doing kind of a supervision. So I was handed a project and I was told to go get it done. And I just loved that process of Sort of starting from a, a set of plans on a piece of land and going through an entitlement process and working through a city and getting permits, building it through the construction stage. And then probably the most gratifying part was delivering that you know, set of keys to the new owner and uh, sitting in the in the kitchen in the commissary for this new manufacturing building and just seeing people coming in. This is where they live. This yeah. is where they work. This is where they earn their living. And uh, that sort of very tangible product was sort of the the work product, you know, having worked in the consulting industry a little bit, uh, my work product was a white piece of paper with a bunch of typing on it, uh, a little less fulfilling. So uh, real estate had, uh, you know, been great uh, as as something you know, as an alternative to that. So I've enjoyed yeah. it since then. I joined uh, Prologis in 2005. So uh, I was uh, working uh, with AMB at that time, and we uh, merged in 2011 with Prologis. 
So I'm a 15-year veteran now of the Prologis campaign. Great. And um, what is your role at Prologis? So I'm the president of the West Region. The, the West Region is Colorado West, if you would, uh, and includes uh, San Diego to Seattle. So uh, we have 12 offices, about 200 employees, and approximately 195 million square feet of industrial buildings. It's uh, It's been an extremely vibrant area. I've worked in this part of the world for quite some time, and we've seen a lot of evolution of the business. We've seen uh, a lot of things that uh, are you know, communication technology and information awareness has just really changed over the last 35 years of being in the business to how uh, readily accessible the data has become. And uh, the, the challenge for uh, for a lot of us these days is trying to put that information to work, make good decisions. Yeah, no, no, def- definitely. And um, how big is the Western division compared? You know, how, how does that piece of the puzzle fit in the rest of the United States and and, and on a global whole? basis, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like how, how big are you in the in the entire pie? Well, I'm a, a pretty good uh, chunk of the pie. Uh, the, the whole company is about 965 million square feet. So if I'm around yeah. 200 of that, uh, that sort of gives you yeah. the equation. Um, you know, we have... 4,600 buildings worldwide and uh, about 5,500 customers. I think uh, 1,700 employees worldwide. We're in 19 countries, so uh, it, it's a it's a rather large enterprise. It's you know it it sort of does a, a good job though of, of focusing where it wants to be. This company and uh, has been very disciplined. We've experimented here and there in a number of places and. Uh, uh, over time, I've sort of found our niche, you know, as these large population centers uh, where a lot of uh, consumption takes place. That has become our, our principal focus. And I think what we've really, when we've expanded, we've really had our customers, our tenants, take us to yeah. these places where we've gone. So uh, that, that's been a good strategy for us. So go to where the customer yeah, wants course. to be. And obviously, uh, the Inland Empire, I think, is the biggest sort of piece of the pie in your piece of the pie, if that if that's accurate, right? It is. It is the single largest concentration of real estate uh, of any one market in Prologis. We're just uh, over uh, 60 million feet in that one uh, sub-market. And uh, it's actually where I cut my teeth. I, when I started in 1984, good grief, uh, that was where one of my first projects was. So I've been knocking around in that town, uh, you know, for yeah. many, many years. It's a, it's a confluence of freeways, airports, rail, yep. and people. And I think that's that's sort of the the recipe that uh, we've tried to export a- across the globe. One of the things, obviously, that that has come out of uh, you know the pandemic and the economic sort of global crisis as a result of that has been that people are now um, relying more on on distribution of their goods, uh, running through um, a lot of properties that, you know, like the ones you, you own. Were, were there certain things around the globe that gave you guys a sense of where, you know, the world is going to be? And you were just sort of waiting for the right time for that to happen in North America also. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of a sense of how, how you saw that and um, how the industry has been shaping over the last, you know, couple of decades. Well, certainly uh, the industrial sector uh, pre-COVID had 
an incredible run, if you would. Uh, we, we was, I think about uh, 2005, six, seven, things seemed pretty good. It was, everything was great, but everything was leveraged when we had the great financial crisis thereafter. And that's really when everybody in the business of uh, industrial warehouse distribution and transportation logistics and the logistics sector had to figure out how, how do we get this right uh, going forward in order to survive. And I think uh, well, one of the things that we learned was uh, what the customers needed, right? And figuring out how to focus on what their needs were and uh, what made buildings more efficient for them. What were the features that made their business profitable? All of those things had to be sort of inventoried. And I think we spent an awful lot of energy sort of reinventing ourselves, trying to be a little bit better at everything and thinking in terms of what would the customer want? That was really that driving force. So I think that's really what uh, a lot of the successful enterprises have done over that period is, is figure out how to address the customer need and be efficient for them to make uh, life easier in these big units. You know, it, it, an interesting thing, when I first entered the business, uh, my first industrial project was 200,000 yeah. square feet, which is seemed yeah. huge in those days, huge. And uh, to the extent that in some submarkets around the U.S., that's still a pretty large unit. But we routinely build million square foot buildings these days. So a lot of concentration into a single unit has taken place. And that usually is a function of companies trying to figure out how to have a, a hub and spoke form of uh, system where they have a large concentration of product brought in, sorted, readied for then distribution to the doorstep, to the retail store or to the business. And those are then distributed into smaller nodes that are closer to the customer. So that million square foot building was truly a, a phenomenal change uh, over the last 15 to 20 years. And now it's a little bit yeah. more routine. The other factor is, is clear heights. In the prior 25 years, clear heights range from 18 to 24 feet. Uh, we had this huge shift all the way up to 30 feet at one point as a function of fire protection uh, equipment getting better. And now we've gone all the way up to 40 feet on a routine basis where similar enhancements in fire protection, internal safety allows a customer to realize the cubic volume of a building and rack more efficiently and vertically uh, that, you know, the prior 20 years, that just wasn't how we did things. So that's been a, a value really using the cube you pay on a square foot basis. I don't know when we'll ever figure out how to reprice it effectively there, but right now you rent space on a square foot basis, so floor area. And uh, if you can use vertical clearance and cube in your building, you you get to spread that rental cost over a smaller uh, yeah. uh, amount. So uh, obviously a, a, an important yeah, efficiency. Yeah, ab absolutely. And let me actually stick with that concept just for a little while, because I think one of your centers in, in Seattle at uh, at uh, at the Georgetown neighborhood of uh, South Seattle is a is a mm -hmm. is a two story product. Um, I I don't know if that's the oh three okay. story actually sorry three. I I don't know if that's the first in the U.S. or you know first in North America, but but it certainly made made a you know splash in Seattle. Um, you know is is that was that a function of the location being in sort of a semi urban setting, or do you anticipate even things in I don't know Central Valley in California and that a eventually being like that it's a it's a good 
good question and one we think about constantly. We have been doing multi-story buildings in Asia for years. In in Japan, we probably have a dozen buildings that are a multi-story freight elevator service between floors. And in some cases, because of the size of the trucks, we've been able to incorporate a, like a rotary lift where you can drive these smaller trucks up to different floors, load and offload. And uh, it's harder in the U.S. with the large truck model, which is a 53-foot trailer pulled by another 20-foot cab. So it just doesn't work to create the uh, rotary access. So we use ramps in the U.S. for that kind of multi-level access. So what was unique about Georgetown was the fact that we had two levels of full truck access, which had really never been done in the U.S. before. You know, we've certainly, there are lots of multi-story warehouses around a lot of the, you know, urban centers, uh, but they're just elevator access floor to floor. So what we tried to do there was uh, build something that was a unique product. I mean, when we talked about it internally as a, almost like an R&D project. We wanted to see if this would work. How would we do it? What would be the, the costs associated with it? What would be the benefits to the customer? And it, and it was a very interesting thing to do on a speculative basis. So it really was an experiment. And it we learned an awful lot about it. And hopefully we're going to be able to apply some of that learning across the globe in different locations. The lion's share of, of, of our product in that multi-story basis is in, uh, in Asia today. But where land is so dear in metropolitan areas like San Francisco, Seattle, yeah. New York, we will inevitably be building more, we think. So it's it's a matter of uh, figuring out where the zoning works for such a thing, which it did in Seattle. It also has to do with a density uh, of yep. consumption that needs to be there to really warrant it. Because the you know the, the rents on these buildings are somewhat higher, not drastically higher, but a little bit higher than a ranch style warehouse out in the Kent Valley. So uh, it's a it's a little different product, but I think it's we found it it, it's, it it does allow you to be so much closer to the consumer. And a big movement in all of the supply chain management now is that service levels, getting the product to the the doorstep to the customer as quick as possible. With Georgetown being a five-minute drive into the city, uh, it accomplished that, and I think that was its a great yeah, success. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So, Kim, so last cycle, industrial, as I think many other commercial real estate products, did really well. And uh, I think, I don't know what the occupancy was, but you probably have a better sense by, you know, sub-market, but it was in a very low single digits in 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 certain places so i imagine end of 2019 uh, looked very optimistic and positive um, as you were looking into 2020 uh, tell us a little bit about that you know how 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 did you guys at that point in time sort of look at 2020 because my next question is then you know what what happened when the pandemic hit in 2020 <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah well it's 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 great great point i think you know we were all uh, feeling like we were in a very long bull run. The market had been good for 10 years plus. So I think supply was limited. It's It was getting hard to deliver incremental supply. So as a result, uh, with demand continuing to grow, we saw tremendous rent growth throughout the industry. And even 
you know, uh, exceeded all of our expectations. It, it was it was very interesting because people were investing in their uh, local economies. The people wanted to get close to the big consumer populations. Uh, I, I use uh, Los Angeles as an example. I mean, you know, we were running, you know, two to three percent vacancy for the most part, and that's you know that's probably uh, the lowest I, I've seen it where you you. There's just no place for a person to move to. So they have a tendency to stay put or try to make some adaptive changes. And, and if they had to move either through growth, they often had to find somewhere else to go because they just had no options to pick from. And I think, uh, you know, we were obviously still very optimistic. We were projecting, you know, strong rental growth and continued demand for the product. You know, the port activities through the end of last year were were pretty strong all the way up into probably November. And I think as, as such, we, we sort of viewed, well, uh, this could be, uh, we're starting to almost feel guilty yeah. about how good it's been, but to the extent that uh, we're starting to be a little bit more cautious, you know, thinking we were at the end of an economic cycle. But by the same token, we didn't really have any clear indications that it was, it was failing or going to change drastically. So uh, we were talking ourselves into comfort with slow growth slower gdp growth and i think as a result we you know we we were still being prudent you know i think as a, a publicly traded reit you know we 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 think real long and hard about our risk taking so we try to be as precise as we can and as thoughtful as we can about risk so we were in that that shape already and i think we were actually in tremendous shape as a company going into uh, the end of 2019 that has really paid off for us here in 2020. What did you see as um, the pandemic and kind of the whole effect of the COVID-19 crisis kind of came came about? What, what was just not working anymore? Well, you know, uh, we had a little bit of early warning from our our friends in China. You know, we have a, a sizable operation in China, and the feedback was a little hard to understand and uh, predict what that meant for us in the U.S. at the time. But uh, I thought we we started to be a little more cautious, a little bit more careful. And I think uh, part of what we were hearing from our Chinese brothers were that it, it, it things are slowing down to a you know a crawl. So I think as a result, we we started doing some contingency planning and thinking that through what, you know, how would we go about this? And in fact, uh, it's interesting, uh, Vlad, we, we had talked about the possibility of completely working from home as early as February. And we did a few tests and uh, my uh, team in Seattle actually did a couple of days during a week where we said, okay, we're, we're not going to the office. Everybody's going to check their systems make sure their phones and computers and their uh, their Zoom works and everything is so you can operate and function, pay bills, you know, do leases, everything that we would normally try to do at the office. We're going to try and do it from home. So we had a, a little bit of, you know, forewarning, obviously, that made us even think like that. And we started doing some practices in a lot of our offices, which really, really paid off when we ultimately decided to uh, yeah. shelter in place. And, uh, and I think that gave us, you know, we got up to speed quicker. We knew what to do. We had all the systems working and the bugs were already, you know, uh, flushed out. So uh, I think uh, what happened, though, was things kind of slowed to a crawl. For example, showing a vacant space 
there was nobody showing vacant spaces. Nobody wanted to go to a vacant space. Nobody was going to meet you there to show you that space. And uh, it was pretty shocking how that happened uh, so quickly. So renewals didn't really change. You know, people who were in buildings working on transactions with us to, to stay in place and extend for another three, five years, what have you, that business continued right along. In fact, there was almost some degree of urgency to shore that up and be get that behind us. We want to make sure we have some status quo here going forward, and uh, we want to get this this lease renewed. So we found that a very interesting uh, sort of counterpoint to sort of the vacant space that we had had. Or another element uh, that's uh, as interesting to me was we build buildings on a build-a-suit basis and on a speculative basis. Speculative being when there's no tenant in hand for that space, and you're speculating, if you would, that when you complete the building, that a tenant will show right. up then and say, I need to it. So we shut down our speculative business. We looked for a logical stopping point. Say we were grading a, a, a pad for a building. We finished up the grading and weatherized it and pulled off and shut that down. In, uh, you know, by contrast, on Build-A-Suits, with an existing contract to deliver to a customer in the future, we... Uh, you know, we we hustled up and and most of those build suits, as it turned out, were essential businesses. So they were allowed to continue operating and were able to keep going in virtually all of the jurisdictions where we were doing business. So those buildings finished up. And uh, but even with those, you had you had issues on site. You might have different new protocols sure. of safety that sure. we were implementing to you know, make sure that we didn't have an outbreaks on a job site, for example, which would be a disaster. So uh, it's been a it's it's been a quite an experience to go through that, and uh, I think you know we're still not doing speculative buildings. We are finishing up you know one building after another on the build a suit front. So uh, I, you know we haven't crawled to a complete halt, but it, it's it's been interesting to not have that speculative business. And by the way. Our peers have done the same thing in almost every market. Everybody sort of shut it down and just said, let's wait and see. And, you know, slowly and slowly, a, a few of the speculative projects have started up again to get back. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but, and uh, that makes sense, obviously, from a from a risk perspective and just wanted to make sure that you're not overexposed on on something that may not lease for a little while or maybe, you know, may not lease in a certain geography. So that would certainly be an important thing to consider. So as you, you know, you, you said you've been in the industry since the mid 80s. So you've you've seen a you know, few cycles. This is not your first rodeo. Um, you've also, yep. you know, this is as as you know, probably, and you know, this is the time when innovative companies really think about let's use this opportunity to create something new, you know, whether it's invent a new product or create a new service. How is Prologis approaching this this um, opportunity? And you know, what are you guys thinking about in terms of, you know, here's coming out of the this cycle, how our company is going to look like going forward? Well, I will tell you, I, I mentioned this a little earlier in our conversation that w- the the light has come on for us about being uh, focused on our customer uh, customer centricity, and to to do that, you need to understand your customer. You need to communicate with them and you need to uh, predict what their needs are and then try to satisfy them. So we've spent an awful lot of energy working on that uh, here in the last 10 years and particularly in the last two years. 
you know, the industrial sector of the commercial real estate industry has really been probably the slowest to modernize and to embrace yeah. technology. Innovation was not what industrial was known for. And I think that's something that we saw as an opportunity. So I mentioned a little bit about the clear height on buildings and the uh, uh, racking strategies and the fire protection upgrades. All of these things are part of that uh, change in, in features and upgrading with the new technology and, and new innovation. But I think, you know, as important, I think, you know, we're, we're looking at things that are going to be really disruptive to our industry. You know, what are things that might cause us to have to completely uh, change and adapt? And we, we've started a, an enterprise called Prologis Ventures that is really an, an internal organization that is set up almost uh, in a venture yep. capital format to invest in disruptive technology and commercial real estate. You know, we, we, we love to talk about uh, this group's principal goal is to stay ahead of what's next, is to find those things that might be really disruptive to us and our platform. And in some cases, even invest in them, but at a minimum, research them completely and understand them and how they fit into uh, what we'll be doing this time next year. So I, I find that part of our our business fascinating and making a real commitment to it, not only with some very talented people's time, but uh, we're, we're putting some money in it as well. The other thing, we, we also have tried a, a few other things. Uh, we introduced this concept of a clear lease. A clear lease is sort of derivative and asking them what their biggest pain point in dealing with us is. And it's often that CAM reconciliation process that triple net tenants have to go through every year with their landlord. They suddenly get a bill for overspending or under budgeting uh, on some aspect of the operating costs of the building. And we figured out a strategy through a new form of lease. So we'll take that risk. We'll take on that and eliminate this one big pain point. Well, in the course of doing this, uh, we started two or three years ago on this process and our, our tenants love this strategy. You know, I don't know that all of our competitors yeah. love this strategy, but because we have purchasing power and scale and cotton clusters of real estate that allow us to deliver those uh, operating costs at a very attractive basis. And we'll, so we'll provide a not to exceed number to our customer, and then we'll cover the what if it ever goes over. And it's hard for a small landlord to do that because they might not have the buying power or the management to execute and maintain a good procurement practice. So, uh, uh, but we think it's one of those things that uh, it's just, it's a simple thing in terms of modifying how a lease is structured, but it, it truly is uh, listening to the customer and tell them what's hard about their business and dealing with us and then trying to solve yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, I, I think in a way it pays to be big, I think is what you're saying in uh, in not not so many words. Um, curious about your, you know, venture venture arm. You know, does this include automation? Does this include things how to manage properties better? Does it include things like putting in wireless and, you know, fiber optics inside buildings? Is it is it on that scale or, or is it uh, also something else? No, it is on that scale. And I was going to just answer yes here a second ago, but uh, it's all of that. I think, you know, we uh, have a project in the Bay Area uh, called Prologis Labs, 
And where we do experimentation, we do testing, we, we try out things with our customers and see if they would find a new technology feasible, of interest, uh, something that we could work on together or work on as a platform to deliver it on an economic basis. Because a lot of new technology sure. is expensive and it's not always proven. So the challenge is to find those technologies that we think will really work and get our customer feedback on those uh, before, before we go too deep. But uh, the, some of the interesting ideas of creating smart buildings, buildings that are pre-wired and set up for sensors and uh, all kinds of data gathering capabilities, that's relatively new. You, you, you see, uh, uh, in, in probably imagine in your mind, a, a warehouse uh, worker in a, a green suit with a bunch of dots on it, uh, walking through and, and measuring exactly yeah. their movements are in their routine and seeing what that looks like, using that pattern of movement to look for efficiencies and uh, or impediments to efficiency, really. As an example of, you know, the, the, the crazy things that we can do these days, you know, the one that I get a kick out of is the uh, totally automated internal uh, forklift systems where with uh, a forklift can be programmed to go pick up and deliver and move stuff around a warehouse safely with all kinds of uh, capabilities to not run into things yep. or people. And it actually can become safer rather than, uh, you know, less safe with such, uh, you know, a machine yeah. running around. So obviously some of our customers have already instituted robotics in terms of their uh, picking and handling. This is, another level of that same concept. So there are a lot of interesting strategies that are able to be explored. And I think we're going to see more and more of this come to the forefront. Yeah, hundred percent. So Kim, to, you know, wrap this up as, um, you know, you, you entered the industrial space when it was probably, you know, n not the sexiest of the commercial real estate products, but now it's turning out to be the backbone of economy, essentially, you know, knowing everything, you know, and kind of looking into the future, you know, 10 years from now, what do you think industrial real estate is going to look like? Well, my uh, my cheeky answer is it'll it'll be beige, <laughs> with a really discreet green stripe, <laughs> not very fussy. But uh, on the other hand, um, I, I do think uh, multi-story is here to stay. I do think uh, it's going to be an important part of what industrial logistics looks like in the future. We have uh, it, it, there's only so much land, and to the extent that you can build buildings vertically you sort of optimize the utilization of that land, you get a higher FAR. You know, the FA industrial buildings today is between 0.45 and yeah. 0.5 versus on a multi-story where you can go two, three, and 4.0. That's an, a substantially different concept. Uh, we'll have to get comfortable with the fire protection of vertical movements. We'll have to... Uh, figure out whether or not we truly, truly need a very large truck on the top floor, or can we get by with large elevators and have a different type of vehicle maybe doing some of that uh, transportation component. So I do think that will be a big part of the landscape. It's an expensive investment to do it. So again, in, in some cases, big may be better for that initial movement in that direction. But I, I think, you know, we're certainly experimenting all over the place and have a number of drawings on the drawing board with that in mind, trying to optimize there and be smart about it. Because we want to have the product that is durable. 
that lasts a long, long time and is relevant for a long time. And that just forces us to have to continue to innovate and think about this stuff and plan yeah. ahead. Well, uh, Kim, as you keep yourself busy, keep yourself safe as well. Thank you for your time and uh, best of luck. Thank you, Vlad. It was great to chat with you today. 